Good evening, everyone. My name is Andrew Fracknoy. I'm the Emeritus Chair of Astronomy here at Foothill College, and it's a great pleasure for me to welcome everyone here in the Smithwick Theater and everyone listening to us on the web to this special program in the 18th year of the Silicon Valley Astronomy Lectures. Uh, these lectures are co-sponsored by NASA's Ames Research Center, the Foothill College Astronomy Program, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, and the SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute in Mountain View. Um, and we welcome everyone uh, to these ongoing programs. Tonight's talk is a very timely one, uh, and we're delighted to return to, to welcome back uh, Dr. Elliot Quatert, who is going to speak to us about one of the most exciting discoveries uh, that has happened in the last year, uh, uh, the beginning of what many people are calling multi-messenger astronomy. Uh, Dr. Quatert is a professor of astronomy and physics at the University of California at Berkeley and the director of its theoretical astrophysics center. He is an astrophysics theorist who works on a wide range of problems, looking at stars and black holes, all the way to issues of how galaxies form. He's received a number of national awards for his research, but is also highly regarded as a teacher and a public lecturer. He tells me that he teaches a course, an undergraduate non-science majors course at Berkeley on the origin of everything, from the physical to the biological. And I know he's a delightful speaker. We're delighted to have him back to talk about colliding neutron stars, gravity waves, and the origin of the heavy elements. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Quattrack. Thanks everyone for coming out tonight. It's a great pleasure to be here. So what I'd like to do tonight is try to tell you a, a kind of remarkable story about how the conception and development of a new telescope, a new way of seeing the universe, this is actually the telescope I'm talking about, which doesn't look like telescopes you're probably familiar with, but the development of this telescope, which sees the sky in a new way through gravitational waves, how this not only taught us a lot about some of the most exotic objects in the universe, black holes and neutron stars, but also solved a long-standing puzzle about where many of the elements we know and love here on Earth came from. Things like gold, platinum, uranium, californium, and berkelium. <laughs> There's no less altium, as far as I know. So to start, uh, I want to take you back to high school chemistry. I'm sorry to do that. So I don't really mean Breaking Bad Variety Chemistry, one of the best TV shows in history, but actually the BR and the BA there, uh, you may remember, are part of a larger construct uh, known as the periodic table. So I actually really didn't like chemistry. I didn't do particularly well in either high school or college chemistry. Um, physics was much more natural for me. But the periodic table is quite remarkable. Um, in this single table, uh, which comprises elements like hydrogen, helium, oxygen, iron, gold, uh, contains essentially all of the information about the basic building blocks of everything on Earth. 
uh, the lecture hall we're in, the core of the earth, our bodies, are all made out of these fundamental building blocks. Uh, from a physics point of view, we break these down even more, protons, electrons, neutrons, things like that. But from a chemistry point of view, it's these basic elements that describe uh, the world that we live in. One of the remarkable results in physics in the last 70 years has been that we actually know in some detail where most of the elements in the periodic table are actually produced. So the fact that here on Earth and in the sun there's gold, uranium, oxygen, nitrogen, uh, that wasn't kind of put there on high. Each of those elements was formed in some object out in the universe, eventually made its way into the gas cloud that later collapsed to form the sun and the Earth. And we can trace back that story of where those elements were actually formed. And in broad brush, the story is that the lightest elements in the periodic table, hydrogen, which is just a proton and an electron, helium, which is two protons, two neutrons, two electrons, lithium, those light elements we think were actually produced in the very early history of the universe, soon after the Big Bang, in the first few minutes after the Big Bang. But almost everything else, and hence almost everything that's critical for the functioning of life here on Earth, for all of our everyday experience, almost everything else was produced in stars and in stellar explosions. So the sun right now, for instance, is fusing hydrogen into helium. It's turning hydrogen into helium, generating the energy that produces the light of the sun and ultimately produces the heat and life here on Earth. Other stars, as they go through their lives, fuse helium into carbon, carbon into magnesium. Stellar explosions produce things like iron and nickel. And so really stellar processes take the light elements produced in the Big Bang and turn them into all of these heavy elements in the periodic table. But there's been a kind of nagging problem to this story, which is that actually a lot of these heavier elements in the periodic table, we haven't really known where they come from. And that includes uh, a number of things that we're very familiar with, platinum albums, uranium, the gold that's on many of our ring fingers. Those basic elements, we haven't really understood where they come from. We think they must fit somehow into this basic story, but in detail where they actually come from has been quite uncertain for over 70 years. And what's amazing is that something totally seemingly unrelated, building a completely new kind of telescope to look at this sky in a new way, has solved this problem of the origin of the heavy elements in the periodic table. And that's kind of what I want to take you through. So before I tell you how we look at the sky in gravitational waves, uh, I want to remind you how do we look at the sky in light, the light that our eye can see. So almost everything we know about the universe, in fact, comes from just sitting here on Earth, looking up at the sky with telescopes that look at different types of light. So light, fundamentally, from a physics point of view, is a type of wave a wave of changing electric and magnetic fields. And light comes in many different varieties. 
And we talk about the type of light by talking about the wavelength of light. What is the distance over which this pattern of changing electric and magnetic field repeats itself? So very short wavelength light is like gamma rays or x-rays, the x-rays that are used to take a picture of your skull or your teeth when you go to the doctor or the dentist. Uh, waves that our eye can see is actually a very small range of wavelength, kind of illustrated by the prism here. It's this very, very narrow range of wavelength out of a much broader range of kinds of light. Light that's a little bit longer than your eye can see is called infrared light, wavelength slightly longer than your eye can see. And so, for instance, if you've ever looked with night vision goggles or seen pictures taken with night vision goggles, those are actually seeing infrared light. They're seeing the glow that everything here on Earth produces because it has a temperature uh, of 30 degrees or so Fahrenheit or Celsius. Uh, even longer wavelength light is radio waves. Uh, so for the younger people in the audience, uh, we used to get our sound not from iPods and iPhones, but from actual radios, as illustrated here. And those captured radio waves, a form of light, uh, and transmitted them into sound that we could actually hear. So almost everything we know about astronomy has been gleaned by observing the night sky in different types of light and learning about the universe by decoding the information in light of different wavelengths. And it's actually pretty remarkable that using just that one observational tool, we've been able to figure out an amazing uh, amount about the history of the universe. And so just to illustrate kind of how this works, this is a picture of exactly the same object in the night sky taken with three different types of light, taken with a radio telescope, a visible telescope, and an X-ray telescope. Exactly the same object looks completely differently when you look at it with a different telescope because we're getting very different information. In the case of the visible telescope, you're seeing each of these blobs of light is a galaxy, each of which has billions and billions of stars. In the X-ray, you're seeing that the space between the galaxies is not actually empty. It's filled with hot gas radiating in the X-rays, much like the corona of the sun. And then in the radio, we're seeing something even more dramatic, which is that the very center of this system is a billion solar mass black hole that's gobbling up gas and spewing it back out into space in the form of these jets or beams of matter that light up in the radio. And so this gives you an inclination that when you can look at the sky in a different way, in this case, different types of light, you can learn fundamentally different things about the universe. And that's kind of the new window that's been opened up in just the last few years is a new way of looking at the night sky. Not in the form of light, waves of electricity and magnetism, but in the form of a new type of wave associated with gravity. So what are these gravitational waves? So this is a picture, kind of an animation, of two objects going around each other. Think of it kind of like the Earth going around the sun, except these two objects in this animation have roughly the same mass, so they kind of equally orbit around each other, unlike the Earth mostly going around the sun. 
And imagine now you're over there in the other part of the auditorium. How do you find out that gravity is changing in time because these things are orbiting around each other? Gravity's not the same. Gravity depends on where things are and how massive they are and how far away things are. And that's changing constantly in this situation because these objects are going around each other. The answer is that the information that gravity is changing is sent out into space in the form of a wave. A wave that you can think of that encodes the information that gravity is changing in time. And so that's illustrated again in this animation here. This is meant to depict that from the orbits of these two objects going around each other, out into space travels a wave that encodes this information that gravity is changing in time due to the motion of these objects relative to each other. And the way to kind of picture this is that at some times gravity's a little stronger, at some times gravity's a little weaker, depending on the exact configuration of the two objects going around each other. And this is the type of wave a wave just associated with gravity that has now been detected for the first time in just the last few years. And that detection has given us insights into a wide range of problems associated with neutron stars, black holes, and, as we'll see, uh, the origin of many of the heavy elements. So gravitational waves were first predicted actually about a century ago by Einstein as part of his theory of general relativity. This is kind of the culmination of Einstein's theories describing uh, how matter behaves when it moves in different ways. Uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity is complicated. It involves a lot of math. It really fundamentally changes our view of what gravity is. Gravity is a property of space. It's not quite a force in the way uh, we thought it was according to Newton. Uh, those details aren't super critical for what we're going to talk about, but you'll often see gravitational waves described as ripples in space-time, and that name really comes from this Einsteinian view that gravity is a fundamental property of space, and when things move around, the structure of space and time itself fundamentally changes. And so this wave here is kind of also can be visualized as a change to the structure of space and time due to objects moving around. Okay, so that's kind of gravitational waves 101, or 001. Um, so imagine you wanted to detect these gravitational waves. You wanted to build a telescope to see them. What kind of objects might you actually be able to see? Well, what you'd like is objects that have a very, very strong gravitational pull. Because you want gravity to change in time and for there to be a strong source of gravitational waves, it would help if you're dealing with things moving around each other with very strong gravitational pulls. And so it turns out that the objects that produce the strongest sources of gravitational waves are the objects that have the strongest sources of gravity. And those are very exotic objects, very different from things that we're familiar with here on Earth. So objects that produce strong sources of gravitational waves are not like stars and planets. They're more exotic objects, in particular, 
black holes and neutron stars. These are the strongest sources of gravity that we know of in the universe, uh, are uh, objects where you have a large amount of mass shrunk into a very small region. Gravity gets stronger when there's lots of stuff in a very small region, and black holes and neutron stars are kind of the ultimate version of lots of stuff in a very small region. So black holes, as we know from science fiction, are scary. They can turn you into a zombie if you're not careful. <laughs> what they really are, from a physics point of view, is an object where gravity is so strong that it has won out over every other force we know of in the universe. And gravity has caused the object to actually collapse in on itself in many ways, almost down to a point. That's this thing called the singularity here, kind of the, the place where the matter gets crushed to at the center of a black hole. Gra black holes really are fundamentally, we think, objects that are really just energy and gravity, energy and mass compressed into a tiny region that produces a very strong gravitational pull on its surroundings. Neutron stars are almost as exotic they're objects that just manage to escape the fate of becoming a black hole. They're just a little bit bigger uh, than what a black hole would be given the mass of the object. So neutron stars are objects that have masses similar to the mass of the sun, but have sizes about equal to the size of a typical city, so tens of miles across. And so that corresponds to matter compressed to a density that is more than a trillion times larger than in our sun. So a huge amount of mass compressed into a really tiny region. And as the name suggests, neutron stars are also weird in that they're not made of the normal matter that the sun and the earth are made of. The sun is made mostly of hydrogen and helium, uh, the Earth is made mostly of iron, uh, oxygen, nitrogen, uh, silicon, things like that. Neutron stars are actually made mostly of neutrons. Not purely neutrons, they have a little bit of normal matter, protons, but mostly of neutrons. So these are the objects in the universe that we think produce the strongest gravitational pull on things in their surroundings. And so the way to get a strong source of gravitational waves uh, was realized, actually it took a while after Einstein came up with the idea of gravitational waves, it took 40 or 50 years, but people realized eventually that the sources in the universe, the objects in the universe that would be the most likely to actually produce big booming signals in gravitational waves would have to involve neutron stars or black holes in some way. And in particular, what they would involve is sort of like in this animation, they would involve neutron stars or black holes moving around each other very fast, so gravity's changing very fast in time, sending out into space a strong source of gravitational waves. And that's sort of the theoretical expectation of what might produce gravitational waves that we could actually detect in a telescope on Earth. So this is a computer simulation of what that might look like. The simulation solves actually Einstein's equations of general relativity on a computer. It's a simulation of two black holes. 
that are initially orbiting around each other. So they orbit around each other happily for a while, but as time goes on, you'll notice that the two black holes, which are illustrated by the black spheres towards the center of the movie, the two black holes get closer and closer to each other as time goes on. And the blue and yellow here are meant to visualize the gravitational waves sent off by these two black holes orbiting around each other. So the way you should kind of think of it is the blue regions and the yellow regions correspond to regions of slightly stronger gravity, slightly weaker gravity, that represents this wave traveling out, uh, communicating the information that gravity's changing in time as the things orbit around each other. Another way to visualize what's going on here is shown at the bottom of the sim simulation. So the curve at the bottom shows how strong the gravitational wave is as a function of time. So as time goes on and the black holes get closer to each other, the gravitational wave gets stronger and stronger because gravity's stronger as things get closer together. The other thing that happens, you'll notice at the bottom of the movie, is that the time between regions of strong gravity, which is sort of the top of the curve, regions of weak gravity, which is the bottom of the curve, the time between the top and the bottom gets shorter. The thing gets kind of compressed in time. And the reason for that is when things are closer together, they orbit around each other faster. Mercury, the closest planet in, orbits faster around the sun than the planets further out. Not Pluto, okay, remember, no matter what Alan Stern tells you, Pluto is not a planet. <laughs> So things like Uranus and Neptune in the outer part of the solar system take much longer to go around than Mercury because gravity's weaker. And that's what's going on here. Things happen faster when the black holes are closer together. Okay. So there's one thing about this movie that maybe seems a little weird, which is that we're taught when we learn about gravity that the Earth happily goes around the sun because of gravity. But the Earth doesn't fall into the sun, thankfully. These two black holes, though, are initially orbiting around each other, but as time goes on, they actually do fall into each other and they collide. And the reason for that is because of these gravitational waves. Gravitational waves take energy out of the system, which forces the two black holes closer together, which eventually forces them to collide with each other. So it is the gravitational waves which cause the black holes ultimately to collide. So actually, technically speaking, when you were taught, uh, either by Andy or by somebody else, uh, that the Earth is happily going around the sun and it's going to do it forever, uh, that's really not quite true. Actually, the Earth is slowly spiraling in towards the sun because it's radiating gravitational waves out into space. It turns out that gravity between the Earth and the Sun is so weak that it's going to take the Earth forever to spiral into the Sun, and it's totally unimportant, and it'll never happen before lots of other bad things happen. In particular, before the Earth can spiral into the Sun, billions of years from now, the Sun is going to expand up to become a giant and incinerate the Earth. So this is why for the Earth and the Sun, we don't worry about the Earth spiraling into the Sun. But when you're dealing with unusual objects, really strong gravity, black holes close to each other, neutron stars close to each other, then the fact that things spiral in actually becomes important. 
and things like what I showed you in the simulation are what actually happens. Okay? All right. So this is now we have an idea of what gravitational waves are. We have an idea about what types of objects might be produced. How might you actually detect them? So this is the telescope, the LIGO, the laser uh, interferometer gravitational wave observatory, LIGO for short. Uh, it may not exactly look like a telescope. It's not a mirror. It's not just a mirror like your normal telescopes. It's not a refractor. Uh, like a lens on your camera. Um, this is quite big. Each of these tubes, which is a vacuum tube, is four kilometers long. There are two of these telescopes that are basically the same. One is in Hanford, Washington, and the other is in Livingston, Louisiana. And I'll come back in a second to why there are two of basically the same telescope in different parts of the US. And there's actually a third in Italy called Virgo, which is similar, similar in design and operations. So the idea for how to detect gravitational waves, the modern idea for how to detect gravitational waves, was developed in the 1970s. Um, in 1999, the first version of the telescope was built, and they took data for 15 years and didn't detect anything. So they're very patient. Okay? <laughs> In 2015, they developed the advanced version of the telescope, meaning they improved many things about the telescope to make it better. And almost immediately after that advanced telescope came online for the first time, they detected the first colliding black holes. So I want to tell you a little bit about how the telescope operates, just a little bit. So as Andy said in the introduction, I'm actually a theorist. So what that means is I'm, I'm very comfortable with this. Okay, computer simulations, Einstein's theories, complicated math, I'm happy with that. But actual telescopes are, are not my forte. Okay? But nonetheless, I want to kind of give you a basic sense of how this telescope works. I really think this is the hardest experiment that's ever been done in physics, the detection of gravitational waves. It's really an amazing achievement that they were able to do this, and I'll describe a little bit of why it's so hard as we go. So here's the basic idea. This is sort of a schematic illustration representing each of these two long arms. Each of those two long arms has laser light bouncing back and forth between mirrors. So that's illustrated sort of schematically here. You have the mirrors on each of the arms and light bounces back and forth between those mirrors. And what's actually measured is the distance between the mirrors. You use the properties of the light. For those who might have heard this term, it's the interference of light. Don't worry about that if you don't know what that means. But you use the properties of the light bouncing back between the mirrors to measure extraordinarily accurately the distance between the mirrors. And I can't emphasize enough just how difficult a measurement this is. The distance between the mirrors is measured to an accuracy that's much better than the size of a proton, which is the fundamental building block of the nucleus of every atom. Another way to frame it is the closest star to us is a, the Proxima Centauri system, which is about four and a half light years away. And LIGO measures distances, which is equivalent to measuring the distance to Proxima Centauri, 
to a distance, to an accuracy of about the width of a human hair. So it's just unbelievably accurate distance measurements. So what are they measuring? Well, if one of these gravitational waves comes by the Earth, as it passes by the mirrors, it shakes things around a little bit. It causes the distance between the mirrors to move a little bit, and you can measure that that distance between the mirrors is changing in time as the wave passes by. Okay. So that's the basics of the operation of the telescope. Now, why do you have two of them? It turns out there's lots of other things that cause the distance between the mirrors to move around. The Earth, as you may know, living in the Bay Area, the Earth shakes occasionally. And actually, even in Louisiana and Washington, uh, Washington actually is an earthquake-prone area. Louisiana is not particularly known as an earthquake-prone area. But even in Louisiana, there's a lot of shaking of the ground, which messes with the detector and limits how accurately you can do the measurement. In addition, there are trucks going by on nearby streets. The shaking introduced by the truck going by on a nearby street is enough to cause the mirrors to move around. Waves in the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana coming up onto the coast are enough to move the mirrors around. So you build two telescopes in different parts of the country so you can be very confident if you see something coming from out there in the universe and not a nearby truck, a wave, somebody chopping a tree down, somebody shooting at the Louisiana interferometer, which has happened. Um, <laughs> So that's the reason for having these two replicas of basically the same telescope, okay? Because it's really a reflection of how hard the experiment is to ensure that you're detecting a real astronomical signal. You built in this kind of safety into the design of the telescope. Okay. So I want to tell you now a little bit about the amazing science that's been done. So as I already mentioned, very soon after the advanced version of LIGO came online in 2015. They detected the first colliding black holes. What they detected was the collision of two black holes, each of which initially had a mass of about 30 times the mass of the sun. The collision is sort of illustrated schematically in the top, the two black holes orbiting around, getting closer and closer together, and at the end, leaving behind a new single black hole. At the bottom, in the red and the blue, you see the strength of gravitational waves as measured by the two detectors in Louisiana and Washington. And I want you to note the similarity between that and the theoretical prediction. Whoop, there. At the bottom, notice as the black holes get closer together, the signal gets stronger and it gets smushed together in time. And that's exactly what was measured. So really amazing, right? In this case, I'm kind of proud as a theorist. It was exactly what the theorists had predicted the gravitational waves would look like if you have two black holes colliding. And we can actually use the shape of this curve here to measure the masses of the black holes, the time it takes this pattern to go up and down, up and down, the blue and the red pattern, tells us about the mass of the two black holes. So that's how we know that these were two 30 solar mass black holes colliding with each other. We can also measure the mass of the black hole that was left behind. So you might think that's really easy, 
okay? My six-year-old niece is in the audience. She can do 30 plus 30, 60. You might think two 30 solar mass black holes colliding with each other would produce a 60 solar mass black hole. Uh, you would actually be wrong for an interesting reason. Remember, gravitational waves are leaving the system, carrying away energy equals mc squared. So the mass of the black hole left behind is less than 60 solar masses because some of the mass energy is taken out in the gravitational wave. And it's actually a lot. It's like the equivalent of four times the mass of the sun. So it's a, the final black hole mass is closer to something like 56, not 60 solar masses. And that's all of that mass essentially has gone out in these gravitational waves. So this is a really amazing result. Since this initial discovery, LIGO has detected uh, multiple other colliding black holes, a total of five now. What's really exciting for those of us who work in this area is the telescope actually is not taking data now. We're excited about that because there's been way too much good stuff happening. Um, they're not taking data for like a year now, and they're improving the telescope even more. When they come back online next year, it's going to be even more sensitive, so they'll detect even more exciting new things. This detection taught us a huge amount. In particular, this detection was the best confirmation we've had to date that black holes, as predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity, actually exist. Because the shape of this curve of gravitational waves produced by spiraling in black holes is completely consistent with what you get from Einstein's theory of black holes colliding with each other. And the importance of this result, yep? Is that waveform? Yes. Yeah, the question is, how much time is the waveform actually covering? It's uh, less than a second is the actual time. Yeah, great. I should have said that. Thank you. So these two black holes collide quite quickly. At the end, they're orbiting each other. They're very small, like 10 kilometers big. They're orbiting at nearly the speed of light. So things are happening on very short timescales. Great question. So LIGO uh, received the Nobel Prize in Physics this year for this discovery of colliding black holes. Uh, in particular, the Nobel Prize has this clause that only three people can get the prize. So the prize went to three of the people who really came up with and led the conception and initial development of the project. Uh, that's Ray Weiss at MIT and Barry Barish and Kip Thorne from Caltech. But as these three would be the first to emphasize, LIGO is actually a collaboration of over a thousand people, uh, many of whom were really critical for enabling this science. Right? This is a very big, very difficult experiment. We often single out a few people at the prize level, but actually many, many, many people contributed to making this telescope actually work. Okay. So I want to move now to this year. Uh, in August of this year, LIGO detected for the first time collisions not of black holes, but collisions of two neutron stars. And there was a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation, a lot of interest in the idea that LIGO would ultimately detect not just colliding black holes, but collisions involving neutron stars as well as black holes. 
And the excitement about that was basically the following reason. Black holes are really exotic. They're just gravity and energy. There's no normal matter really involved. So there's no way for colliding black holes that we know of to produce any light. So when these colliding black holes happened, people looked with normal telescopes that detect light, and they didn't see anything. And that's what we expected, because black holes really are just gravity. They should produce waves of gravity, not waves of electricity and magnetism, light. Neutron stars, though, are made of matter. Weird matter, neutrons, okay, not the stuff we're really used to, uh, but they are made of matter, and so it's at least possible that collisions of neutron stars would not only produce a source of gravitational waves, but would also produce a source of light. And so there was a lot of hope that the same event on the sky could be seen with these different types of telescopes, and that would teach us very different types of information. And remarkably, that's exactly what happened uh, very soon after August 17th, is that a huge number of telescopes that detect normal light looked, and I'll explain how they did this, they looked and saw associated with this collision of two neutron stars, they saw a new source of light on the sky. Here's what it looks like. So the left, you see a galaxy, and in the kind of upper left of the image, at the tips of those two lines, oh, exciting, at the tips of those two lines, now where the laser pointer is, you see a smudge. That's a very exciting smudge, okay? <laughs> this is what it looked like on the right, is what it looked like the week before and about two weeks later. No source of light there. So this is a new source of light at the place, we think, where the collision of the two neutron stars happened. It wasn't there, it suddenly appeared, and then it disappeared a few weeks later. So it actually took some ingenuity to figure out where to look to know that this was the right galaxy to actually look at. So how did people do that? So this is a movie that sort of takes you through how we figured out, we being the observational community. Remember, I'm a theorist, so I didn't do the observations. I helped with the interpretation, did some of the predictions that we'll come to. Uh, but what the observers did uh, is as follows. So this is the night sky. Okay, that's the night sky on a cloudy night. Here's the night sky. Think of it as the North Pole is at the top, South Pole is at the bottom, so look up, look down. Each of these huge swaths of sky is where on the sky a different telescope told us to look associated with the collision of the two neutron stars. Let me back up, just start it again. So that's the whole sky, all the way up, all the way down. Right after the two neutron stars collided, produced this flash of gravitational waves, there was a source of gamma rays two seconds later on the sky that lasted about two seconds. That's a kind of light. That was somewhere in this broad swath illustrated in the shaded blue region. The gravitational wave telescope told us it had to be in one of those banana regions, and ultimately, zoomed us into that smaller banana region that we're zooming into. In that banana region, there were 40 or 50 galaxies at the distance that LIGO told us this event was at. So what people did is they looked in every one of those 40 or 50 galaxies for a new source of light that suddenly appeared. And that's how we made our way from the entire sky to 
finding this single galaxy with this new source of light that appeared and disappeared on a few week time scale. Over 70 telescopes on the Earth and dozens of telescopes orbiting in space looked at this event. Over a third of the world's astronomers uh, studied this single event. This is the most well-studied single astronomical event in history in terms of, you know, number of people actually looking with telescopes and seeing what it looked like. Every continent on the Earth has telescopes. Notice Antarctica. There's a little blue dot at the bottom. South Pole is actually a good place to observe the night sky. It's cold. It's actually dry. You might not think that, but it's pretty dry. Um, telescopes in Hawaii, Africa, Australia, etc. The neutron star merger that was seen in gravitational waves was seen in every type of light, every wavelength of the electromagnetic spectrum, from the shortest gamma rays, X-rays, uh, to visible light that our eye can see, to infrared light, to very long wavelength radio waves. So every part of the electromagnetic spectrum this event was detected uh, at. So I want to give you an idea of what it means for a third of the world's astronomers to observe a single event. So this is actually, when I want to read a paper, I go to a website that's called ADS, Astrophysical Data Systems, and I type in people's names or I type in the title of the paper and it gives me back the paper. And this is one of the papers, um, actually with a title that Andy alluded to, Multi-Messenger Observations of a Binary Neutron Star Merger. Multi-messenger means light and gravitational waves, two different types of signals from the universe, multiple messengers. Okay. This is a 109-page paper. So you might think a 109-page paper would mean it's like a huge amount of science. This is actually a letter. And a letter is the kind of paper we publish when we don't actually have all that much to say, and we want to say it in just a few pages. So how do you get to 109 pages in a small amount of science? The answer is you have a huge number of authors. So the majority of the pages in this paper are taken up with author names and the universities that authors are at. The science is like 15 pages. Okay? The names and affiliations and acknowledgments of who gave them money and all of that stuff right, is 90 pages. So that's in practice what happens when you have a third of the world's astronomers. Your short papers become book-length treatises. Uh, okay. So I want to tell you a little bit more. What did we actually learn observing all of this light? And there's actually an amazing amount that we observed, and I could tell you different parts of the story. I'm going to focus in on one part of the story. It's the part of the story that's most directly connected to the work that I've done. Uh, and it's also the part that's directly connected to our understanding of the origin of the elements. And that's the information contained in the light that our eye can see, visible light, and light that you can see with telescopes that look at infrared wavelengths, light that's a little bit longer than our eye can see, ultraviolet wavelengths, light that's a little bit shorter than our eye can see. And so that's, again, this kind of smudge in the upper left, a little bit outside the galaxy here, is this source of light that our eye can see, wasn't there, showed up about 12 hours after the source of gravitational waves, were the earliest observations with telescopes that could detect visible light. 
Uh, and then people observed it for a few weeks as it faded away and it eventually went behind the sun, something I realized from my observational colleagues, the sun is sort of irritating because you can't look at sources on the sky when the sun is there, as you might guess. Um, so what do we think produced this source of light? So this is an animation that'll take you through it. So let me kind of give you the big picture first. During the collision of two neutron stars, what we think happens is the two neutron stars collide and they actually eventually collapse to form a black hole. So we think what's left behind after the collision is probably, we're not 100% sure, but probably a black hole. Could be a neutron star, but probably a black hole. But during the collision, some material is actually flung out into space. A small amount, about a percent or so, of the mass of the system is flung out into space. That material, as it's flung out into space, is made mostly of neutrons with a little bit of protons and electrons. And as it's flung out into space, it expands out, it cools, and it eventually starts to combine to form elements. And what elements does it form? Well, it's mostly neutrons going out, so it combines to form elements in the periodic table that are mostly neutrons. And those are the very heavy elements in the periodic table. Things like gold and lead and berkelium and californium, et cetera. So neutron star debris flung out into space should produce, we think, theoretically, these very heavy elements in the periodic table. Now, many of those elements, when they're first produced, are not stable. They're radioactive, like uranium plutonium, things like that. And that means that as this cloud is expanding out into space, it literally, literally is like a little nuclear reactor. It's a nuclear reactor that's kept hot by the radioactive decays of all of these heavy elements produced in this debris flung out into space. And so we think it's that radioactive heating, that radioactive kind of nuclear reactor in this debris flung out into space that keeps everything hot and allows it to shine, producing a bright source of light that we can see over the course of several weeks. And so this animation kind of takes you through that. It shows brightness as a function of time in light that's, the red curve is light that's infrared light, a little longer than light that you can see with your eyes. The blue is visible light, light that you can see with your eyes. And then the right is sort of the artist's conception uh, of the geometry of this expanding radioactive cloud of ejected heavy elements as it expands out into space. This was actually done by my colleague, Dan Kaysen, who's also in the physics and astronomy department. So he led a paper with myself and a few others interpreting these observations, putting together this picture uh, of what had happened in this event. Now, one of the great things about light uh, that we've learned over the centuries of observing light is that we know that depending on the exact wavelength of light, the exact brightness in the infrared visible ultraviolet, that's sort of a signature of what elements you're looking at. Each element produces light in different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. 
And so we can actually use the fact that this event initially produced more blue light and later produced somewhat redder light. We can use that to tease apart what elements were actually produced in the event using the observations themselves. And that's how we can actually infer that this one event, this one colliding neutron star flinging a little bit of debris out into space, ejected out into space over a hundred times the mass of the Earth worth of gold and platinum, and probably several times the mass of the moon worth of berkelium and California. So I'm only emphasizing those because we're, well, we're not in Berkeley, we're near Berkeley, we're in California. If I were giving this talk in, uh, in Massachusetts, I probably wouldn't emphasize berkelium and californium. Actually, this is kind of neat, berkelium and californium, the only other place they're known to exist is actually in laboratories on Earth. We've not seen them uh, actually naturally occurring before. Uh, but we think they were produced in this particular event. So this is really remarkable. This one colliding neutron star right, produces an amount of these exotic heavy elements that's far more than the mass of the Earth itself, uh, you know, rivaling the mass of all of the small planets in the solar system. And we're able to infer that directly from the observations between how bright this was, how long it took the light to fade away, the fact that it was initially bluer and then later redder, we can tease apart how much material was ejected out into space and at least roughly what it was actually made of. Okay, so I wanna, before I end, I wanna give one kind of slightly different take on all of this. So I've emphasized this as a historical problem. I've taken you through sort of historically how we got to this discovery, the development of this new telescope, the remarkable new observational results when the telescope came online. But actually, this is an example where many of the results needed to interpret the observations were already in place and had been predicted theoretically well before the observations were actually taken. So this is uh, my former graduate student, Brian Metzger, who's now a professor uh, of physics at Columbia in New York. In 2010, we did some theoretical calculations, and we tried to calculate, just from the laws of physics, what would it look like if two neutron stars collided and you flung out into space some material, and it produced a radioactive cloud that stayed hot and produced light. We went through the laws of physics that we thought we understood without observational guidance, just using uh, the physics as we understood it, and predicted what we thought that would actually look like in terms of the kind of light that would be produced. And the red curve here is taken from our 2010 paper that was led by Brian, and the blue points are actually the points from this detection last year. And so what this highlights is this is a case actually where we were able to predict to some decent accuracy what it should look like without actually a ton of observational guidance. Just using our understanding of what neutron stars are made of, understanding radioactive decay of elements, how they produce heat, how hot balls of gas produce light, et cetera, we put that physics together to predict what it was actually, 
what it would actually look like. And many other groups did this as well. My colleague Dan Kaysen played a key role in this. And that kind of theoretical work really set the stage for interpreting all of these amazing observational results when they came out. And they enabled us to make these strong inferences about what heavy elements were produced, how much of those heavy elements were produced, et cetera, that kind of relied on this theoretical groundwork that had been established over the preceding decade. And of course, there's a whole other theoretical layer of you know, solving Einstein's equations of merging neutron stars and black holes that's needed to interpret these events as well. So I'm highlighting this, of course, partially because I'm a theorist, so I want to give the theorists a little bit of credit. But really, it is fundamentally, especially in astronomy, it's the interplay between observations and theory that drives our field forward so quickly. There's this very healthy back and forth between predictions, discoveries, refined predictions, et cetera, that's really critical to the progress of science. And I think we've seen that very nicely in this particular event. Yep? Yeah, so the question. Can we save the question okay. at the end because we need the microphone? Yep, we'll come back to the question at the end. So. Okay, so I want to end just by putting this in a little bit of broader context. So Carl Sagan famously said that we are all star stuff. A colleague of mine, Martin Reese, frames it as we are all nuclear waste. <laughs> Same idea, you can pick which one you like more. That idea is the idea I alluded to at the beginning of the talk. We are all the products of nuclear fusion in stars and stellar explosions. All of the heavy elements, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our bones, the oxygen we breathe, were produced by nuclear processes in stars. Stars like the sun, stars heavier than the sun. Those heavy elements are then ejected out into space and gathered up into clouds of gas, as shown in the bottom image here, famous image from the Hubble Space Telescope. So heavy elements produced in stars, ejected into space by explosions and winds, gathered up into gas clouds. Eventually, these gas clouds collapse to form new stars and planets. Those stars and planets contain in them the nuclear material produced by previous generations of stars. That's what Sagan and Reese meant by those quotes. What we now know is in every one of us, here on Earth, here on the sun, probably in every life form in the universe, is a little bit of material produced by colliding neutron stars. A little bit of neutron star debris is in every one of us, literally in our bodies, in addition to being on many of our ring fingers in the form of gold or platinum rings, we also have gold in our bodies. Our cells have a small amount of gold in them. In addition, though, I think there's an even more interesting uh, and surprising moral of this story, which is Uranium, which is one of the heavy elements produced in colliding neutron stars, uranium is actually quite important to the functioning of life here on Earth. So what uranium does, there's uranium in the Earth's mantle. Uranium decays radioactively, and it heats things up. And it actually causes the interior of the Earth to say molten liquid and boil. That boiling motion of the mantle of the Earth is responsible for plate tectonics, which is responsible for earthquakes, bad, okay? 
but it's also responsible for volcanoes. And in particular, plate tectonics is responsible for what's called the long-term carbon cycle, for the fact that on long time scales, the Earth's atmosphere isn't static. The Earth's atmosphere is actually sucked into the interior of the Earth uh, in as plates go down, deepen, and melt, the Earth's atmosphere gets dragged down with it, and new atmosphere is ejected out into the Earth by volcanoes and you know, magma vents and things like that. And biologists think that the fact that the Earth has plate tectonics and has a long-term carbon cycle is actually critical for the maintenance of life here on Earth. If we didn't have tectonics, we wouldn't have a long-term carbon cycle, and we probably wouldn't have life, at least of the form as we know it. And so it's not an exaggeration, then, to say that there's a real sense in which we owe uh, the existence of life, at least as we know it, to colliding neutron stars, which produced uranium, which produced heating in the Earth's mantle, which drives the long-term carbon cycle. So I'll end there and happy to take any questions that you have. About that graph where you showed a projected red line and blue squares lined right along it, except off at the extreme right, the red line went up a bump and the blue squares it fell off. Yeah. That's right. So the question is, there's pretty good agreement here, and then there's not so good agreement at late time. So these calculations that we did were done with some simplifying assumptions about how light kind of gets out of this expanding cloud of gas. And there have been better calculations since then, which uh, show better agreement with the types of observations that were done here. So. Yes. Um, so far, we've had black hole, black hole mergers, and neutron star, neutron star mergers. Do we anticipate seeing black hole, neutron star mergers? And if so, uh, would they you know, teach us additional uh, science beyond what we already have? Yes. So we, we do expect to see black hole, neutron star mergers. We don't know how often black holes and neutron stars orbit close enough to each other that they collide. So it's kind of uncertain when LIGO will see them, but we certainly do expect them to exist uh, and to produce similar types of events. Um, generally speaking, I would say the expectation is that the type of light that a black hole neutron star event would produce is similar to the neutron star, neutron star mergers. So I think it would be surprising if there, there were something kind of radically qualitatively different. It'll be quantitatively different for sure, probably not completely qualitatively different. So. Thank you. I actually have two questions, both quite quick. I was wondering, was there a neutrino spectrum of any kind? And the second one is, um, do we expect gravitational waves to be gravitationally lensed by large structures that we could see even more distant events? So there were neutrino telescopes that looked for neutrinos coincident with the gravitational waves and the light. They didn't detect anything. Um, there are actually a lot of neutrinos produced in the collision. 
but it was far enough away that it's not surprising that they didn't detect any. Uh, the second question is, yes, gravitational waves do get lensed by matter, just like light does. So there is a gravitational lensing effect on the gravitational waves. Um, that's not something that's detectable with kind of this generation of detectors, but it is something that in, in principle will be detectable in the future. So. Yeah, um, this may be a simple answer, uh, but why do gravity waves travel at the speed of light? So we think that our kind of more, our deeper physics understanding of why light travels at the speed of light uh, is that light is a particle, the photon, that has no mass, and particles that have no mass all travel at the speed of light. So what, the fact that the light and the gravitational waves arrived at a similar time tells us directly observationally that whatever particle is associated with gravity, which is called the graviton, it also has very little mass. And so that gravitational waves hence also travel at basically the speed of light. It could be a tiny bit less than the speed of light, but it's very, very close to the speed of light. And fundamentally, that's because the graviton is a very low mass particle, we think. So. Is it possible for you to give a understandable explanation um, of why it is that you get heavy elements um, when neutron stars collide? I mean, what, from your description, it sounded like you're talking about individual neutrons going out and colliding together. Yes. Um, or is it clumps of neutrons, you know, city-sized blocks of neutrons, or is it, you know, little yeah. soccer balls or something? So it's, what it is is you have a few elements like carbon, nitrogen, iron, something like that around, and they're in, sitting in this sort of bath of neutrons. And the neutrons basically get absorbed. They run into, say, the iron nucleus, and they get absorbed by the iron nucleus, turning it into a heavier element that has more neutrons. There's so many neutrons around that the nuclei are constantly being bombarded by neutrons, getting heavier and heavier in the number of neutrons in the nucleus. And then eventually, the nucleus has so many neutrons that it's unhappy, and it decays. The neutrons decay into protons, what's called beta decay, forming a nucleus now that has a bit fewer neutrons, a bit more protons. That basic product of add neutrons and eventually decay is how you build up the heavy elements. It's actually similar to how fission reactors on Earth work. Fission reactors on Earth work, you, ta you take some fissile material, plutonium, and you shoot neutrons at it. Uh, that basic reaction, neutron capture, is the same thing that's going on here. So you wouldn't get these if you didn't have normal matter you, sitting around? You, yeah, that part's a little more subtle. <laughs> you get the normal matter initially out of the kind of neutron star debris as it expands out. Some of it actually has protons in it. So there's enough protons around that you build up some normal matter, some normal nuclei. Thanks. If you just had just a sea of neutrons, no, nothing else, you wouldn't build up these heavy elements. Yeah. I do not think that neutron stars should exist. 
because if it's pretty much solid neutrons, they should fly apart. So the reason, the reason they don't fly apart is because of gravity. Gravity is so strong that it holds the star together. Very much like gravity holds the Earth together and the Sun together, it holds the neutrons in place, uh, stopping it from flying apart. Yeah, but if it were the mass of the Earth, let's say... Say again? If it were the mass of the Earth, it would just fly apart. If it were, if it were the mass of the Earth and that small size, uh, it would... Yes, it would not just sit there happily. It would fly apart. It's, it's because it's very massive and very small that gravity's able to hold it together. So, so neutron stars are not solid. They're, they're actually more like a liquid than a solid. So the old theory about the origin of heavy elements was type 2 supernovas, I believe. Is that no longer the case, or are, is it now of multiple origins, and what percentage is coming from supernova, and what percentage is coming from neutron star mergers? So we, we've always been pretty confident that uh, colliding massive stars, type 2 supernovae, uh, produce things like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, some of the iron, nickel, some of it is exploding white dwarfs. You're right that the leading idea for a while of where these heavier elements was produced, many of them, was in exploding massive stars. As those models, models of exploding massive stars, have gotten more and more sophisticated over the last decades, it has become harder and harder for them to actually produce elements past iron. And so I would say, I mean, the, the Conservative answer would be to say that there's still room for some exploding massive stars to produce some heavy elements, but this event and everything we've seen and the theoretical work is consistent with colliding neutron stars producing most of the heavy elements are above iron. Are there enough neutron star mergers? Yeah, so that's always been a worry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this event was corresponded to a surprisingly high rate, a high number of neutron star collisions per year, and a surprisingly large amount of mass ejected out into space during the event. Both of those, lots of mergers, lots of ejected stuff, go in the way of making it easier for neutron star mergers to pr produce a lot of the heavy elements. Well, we've, but only, we've only seen one. We've only seen one. So there's definitely room for uh, massive stars to produce some of the neutron-rich heavy elements. Yes? Uh, my understanding is that uh, um, gamma ray bursts, and there have been a lot of them, are essentially neutron star mergers. Um, but my question had to do with um, the the matter that's flung out from neutron stars, uh, you're assuming that it's uh, normal uh, lighter elements produced in stars and eventually <clears throat> becoming uh, a neutron star because just a lot of the protons and neutron, uh, well, neutrons, uh, well, protons absorb the electrons in that, that density and become neutrons. So when they're flung apart, why isn't this neutron star, which is like a, uh, 
and a giant nucleus with an atomic number of, what, 10 to the 57 mm -hmm. or something. Um, when it comes apart, chunks that might have only 10 to the 33 uh, would be a gigantic atom, a gigantic nucleus that then decays incredibly fast. So you're talking about fusing to build up these heavy elements. That's right. Couldn't, so fission, couldn't fission do it? If, it, if the material, if the neutron star material f was flung out into space fast enough, it actually would just stay neutrons and protons. So it's flung out into space pretty fast, which means like a few tenths of the speed of light, so that's pretty fast, but, not, but slow enough that there's time for these reactions to happen and to build up heavy elements. So that's the, the answer. You are right that in principle, if you rip the material off super fast, then you, it would have a different outcome. But at the speeds we actually think happen and in fact measured in this event that things were moving at a few tenths of the speed of light, you do build up the heavy elements that I talked about. Yeah, I'm curious to know how long were these neutron stars and black holes gravitationally bound. How long was that interaction? Was it days, months, thousands of years? Right, great, great question. So how long were the neutron star, two neutron stars or the two black holes, how long were they orbiting each other in this dance, slowly spiraling into each other? Uh, we don't know, because all we saw was the end, so we can't really answer that. Um, but it's almost certainly um, many billions of years. So a, a very long time. Um, for the neutron star merger, I think there's a very good argument that it was many billions of years, and that's because this, the galaxy that it was found in is very old, so it's not forming stars today. All of its stars were formed billions of years ago. That means all the neutron stars were formed billions of years ago. So they must have been orbiting each other for a while, and it just took a few billion years for gravitational waves to cause the orbit to shrink to where they collide. Great, thanks. Oh, so the, the black hole merger and the neutron star merger make a different signature in these LIGO instruments, is that right? Yeah, okay. so they, the difference from the gravitational wave point of view is really the time scale for the wave to oscillate. Neutron stars are lighter, so they produce higher frequency, shorter period signals. And they also produce slightly weaker signals. So using the strength of basically how far, how far apart the mirrors moved relative to each other and the time scale over which the mirrors moved relative to each other, we can figure out the masses that were involved in the event. So you've seen several black hole mergers and one neutron star merger. Yes. Has, did anyone try to look where the black hole merger was to try and find the negative result of we yes. couldn't see any light, so the black hole is confirmed? There are a lot of papers written on not detecting light associated with black hole mergers. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, they're, they're interesting in the sense you can say with confidence that the amount of light that we saw from the neutron star merger we did not see from the black hole merger. So that kind of directly tells us that these two mergers involved fundamentally different types of objects. So that, that non-detection is quite useful for that reason. Okay, so, so this is really hard evidence that there are black holes and not just neutron stars around. That's, that's right. I mean, I think there's, 
there's still a little wiggle room, but it's, it's getting harder and harder. I, I think, personally, that there's not really a viable alternative to saying that those were colliding black holes as predicted by general relativity. So. Yep. Hi. Uh, my question is, has anyone done any research on how many neutron stars it would take, or like how many neutron stars would need to merge in order to form a black hole? Is that? So we don't actually know. So as if you consider a neutron star and you make a more and more massive neutron star, we know that at some point it can't support itself against gravity anymore, and it will collapse to form a black hole. But we don't know exactly how massive the neutron star has to be for that collapse to a black hole to happen. It's probably around two and a half times the mass of the sun. So probably two neutron stars colliding with each other most of the time is enough to cause it to collapse to a black hole. Definitely, if there were then a third neutron star that came in, it would definitely be enough to cause it to collapse to form a black hole. According to Sky and Telescope, there was also a radio wave component uh, that arrived with a great delay. Do you have an explanation for that? Yeah, so, the, so I highlighted the, the optical, the visible, and the infrared light because that's the part that tells us about the origin of the elements. The radio light has a different origin. So that light is produced as this cloud of debris that we talked about. As that expands into space, eventually it runs into surrounding gas. As it runs into surrounding gas, it heats up the surrounding gas, producing light at radio wavelength. And the reason the radio took a long time to come on, there was a long delay, is because it takes a while for that expanding debris cloud to kind of go out into space and run into a significant amount of material. I was also curious if you know the brightness of the optical component in terms of stellar magnitudes. Huh. The question, I don't know magnitudes very well, I'm embarrassed to say. So if there's any amateur astronomers in the audience, please forgive me. Uh, I'm a theorist. So I can give it to you in ergs per second. Um, it was about 10 to the 42 ergs per second. I think it was about uh, an absolute visual magnitude of minus 15, I believe. But as I said, that's not my forte. Hi, Professor Quatret, uh, right? Sorry. Yep. You lost time. Yeah. Thank you for the lecture, first of all. Really enjoyed it. Um, and my question is, um, when the neutron stars collapses, how bright it is? Because you mentioned that it was detected in, a, in, a, in, a, in another galaxy. And can you please go back to the, sl the slide? Yeah, and uh, from the picture, we see that it's really, really bright. And does the collision really uh, can outbright the galaxy? Thank you. Right. So so at its brightest, it was about 100 million times brighter than the sun. At its brightest in visible light, it was about 100 million times brighter than the sun. That's a good number. I should have said that already. Yes. So that's how bright it was. In, in gravitational waves, when the merger happened, the brightness, how much energy per time was going out in gravitational waves, 
was brighter than everything else in the universe combined. For that you know, fraction of a second, the single event was brighter than everything else in the universe. So if this merge would, um, if this merge happens in our galaxy, it would be really, really bright and... Yes, it, it would be. If it happened in our galaxy, as is actually this, this was about 100 million light years away and it was bright enough that it was actually detectable with something like a 12-inch telescope. But if it happened in our own galaxy, um, you know, this is something that in principle you could see with your naked eye, that's right. So would, would the night be like a day? No, it wouldn't be that, it wouldn't be that bright. And don't get your hopes up, uh, it's something like once every 30,000 years for one of these to happen in our galaxy. So it's gonna be a while before this happens in our galaxy. Uh, okay, but since when it happens? Oh, okay, sorry. We won't have time for three more questions. Three more questions, okay. Okay, I read that the, the um, electromagnetic radiation in some part of the spectrum is actually getting brighter, not dimmer over time. Is that correct? And please say more about it. Yes, that's right. So in the, in the X-rays and the radio, the source is actually still brightening, like today, still getting brighter. And that's this cloud of gas running into stuff. So what happens is as time goes on, the cloud of gas sweeps up more and more surrounding stuff. And as it sweeps up more and more surrounding stuff, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And you said that's both X-rays and radio waves? X-rays and radio, that's right. Thank yep. you. Yep. I had two questions. Question number one is, is there any explosions associated with any of this? And of any kind of light or any kind of explosion that you'd ever think of? And <clears throat> which one produces more overall reactions? Black hole merger or neutron star merger? So I would say the whole thing is kind of an explosion. The collision of the two neutron stars is this incredibly violent event that flings all this debris out into space. The collision takes a tiny fraction of a second to happen. So you, these neutron stars spiral in, in the last millisecond they collide, boom, blow all this stuff out into space. So I, I really do think that is very much like an explosion. Um, and then the second question was what? Which one produces more what? Overall reaction stuff. I would say, you know, the neutron star, neutron star, because it involves some normal matter, produces more kind of interesting, a wider variety of interesting debris and, and heavy nuclei and things like that. And I forgot to ask, it, and when you said iron and gold, does that literally mean chunks of iron and gold floating out in space? Not chunks, so it's still in, it's still in individual atoms. So it's not, it's not in solid form like uh, an actual hunk of iron or gold. That won't happen until sort of this phase of the story, the last arrow here, when the cloud of gas that has this iron and gold floating around collapses to form a planet, things will get compressed to high enough densities that it turns solid. But right now, it's actually uh, still in atomic form. So. Okay, one last question, oh, I think. Okay, thank you. So my question might be a little naive. However, 
I'm wondering, is it possible that uh, the explanation of neutron star emergent behavior and the gravitational wa waves as the consequences uh, can be explained by structure of what we call reality itself, like uh, basically space-time curvature. And we don't have go that far because it's even here and we're just not able to perceive it with what we have. But actually all that, what created by a huge massive object are here and the all explanation of that behavior like around. So I think in, I think there are many parts of what, what happened that can be understood as associated with the structure of space-time. That's the kind of Einsteinian view of gravity, origin of gravitational waves. But it is in our understanding not spatially in the same place. It really is, you know, this event happened somewhere else in space and time, right? It happened, this happened 100 million years ago because it took light and gravitational waves 100 million years to get to us from this event. So it's not at one place in space and time. It's actually a very different place in space and time where this happened. Thanks for the great questions. <laughs>